I want us to uh, really focus our attention on verses 17 to 21, that section there. And if you just look with me at verse 16, uh, we see there how it all is launched. The Apostle Peter is quoting from the Old Testament book of Leviticus when he says in verse 16, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Who are we? What makes us distinct here tonight, along with congregations of the Lord's people across all the nations of the world? What is it about us? It's not what we wear, it's not the music we like, it's not what we look like, it's not our intellectual or cultural interests. It's nothing like that. It's not our background, it's not our wealth or lack of wealth, anything like that. It's the fact that God has called us to be his own people. And he says to us, be holy, for I am holy. And we thought briefly two weeks ago about what that meant, particularly in the lives of God's Old Testament people. It was seen especially in the, it was seen certainly in the outward aspects of their lives. But God, both Old and New Testament, has always been profoundly concerned with our hearts, with our inner beings, with our souls, with our minds, with our attitudes. And our God, his great work is to circumcise our hearts, to make us soft-hearted towards himself and to love him. What is it to be holy? It is to be a people that belong to God, that are separated to God and for God, that are devoted to God. And Peter is going to spell out more and more over the course of this letter what that holiness of life looks like. But before we come to anything like that, what I want to think about this evening is what we might call motives for holiness. You might be sitting there thinking, why should I want to be holy? How can I desire to be holy? I I kind of understand that I need to be holy. I don't quite know what it means, and we all perhaps think like that from time to time, and that will come later on. But tonight we're thinking, well, why should we want to be holy people? What is there to motivate us to be holy? Well, there are three motivations that I want us to see this evening. And the first of them is found in verse 17, and it is that God, our Father, is an impartial judge. Verse 17, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, I don't know about you, but you might be thinking, That seems like a bit of a bump down to earth after some of the heavenly heights we've been scaling in recent verses in 1 Peter. I mean, come on, joy inexpressible, full of glory. Prophets and angels long to look into these things, and now we're down to uh, fear, judge, all of these things. They they sound like we're, we're not where we were. This feels like a rude awakening. What's happened to the high exalted tones of what Peter was saying earlier in the letter? Does this make us a little bit uncomfortable? Now let's try and understand really what Peter is saying 
here. In what sense is God our judge? Is Peter thinking about final judgment here? Now let's be clear. There is a final judgment for every human soul. There is. Otherwise, Paul would not say in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, including himself in this, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There is a final judgment for believers and for unbelievers. I don't want to labor that point tonight. I will make only one vitally important pastoral point that needs to be stressed. If you are in Christ, you have no fear of condemnation on that day of judgment. There's no uncertainty about it. You will be acquitted. You and I are justified, declared righteous. There is nothing to cause terror and alarm and fear of that kind on the day of judgment. But what is Peter saying here? Do you notice his language? He talks about judgment in the present tense. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. There is an ongoing present judging of God in your life and mine from day to day. Now, what do I mean by that? Any responsible parent will pay the closest interest to what their children are doing and will discipline them and reward them and correct them and encourage them and guide them suitably. If I can use an illustration, not of a parent, but of a teacher. It's a slightly different illustration, but I well remember, I may have told you this before, I remember slaving over a geography project when I was about 13 years of age. Took hours and nights to do it. Gave it in on the deadline for the geography teacher to, to mark. We all did that. That was about February, I suppose, of year eight, I think it was. And all of those geography projects came back on the last day of term in July, unmarked. And you thought, what a letdown. Why did we bother? He doesn't care. He doesn't care about how well we've done. And my point tonight is, God, our Father, is not like that. He's far too interested in you and in me simply to just sort of let us wander wherever we want to go. He is a Father who disciplines us. And that sense of judging is that he is watching over us and he is dealing and he is acting in our lives appropriately to our to the way that we are going in the course of our lives here is a father god a father over a great household innumerable children and what's he like he's an impartial judge which means god has no favorites It literally means, the word impartial means, God doesn't look at our faces. We do that, don't we? We find some people are amiable. You look at somebody and you you, you kind of feel you're going to get on well with them. You find them more attractive than somebody else. Uh, Somebody is 
going to give more to you if you're nice to them than somebody else is going to, and that kind of thing. Uh, Somebody else is uh, from a certain background, or they're privileged, or whatever it might be, and we feel we've got to act in a certain way towards them, and and we neglect other people by comparison. Well, God, our Father, is not like that at all. He doesn't look at our faces. He doesn't look at where we live, or or what job we do, or how respected we are by other people. He is no respecter of persons. That's what Peter himself said when he realized when Cornelius came to him, or when he went to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, and God was saving this Gentile Cornelius. Peter says, I now understand that God is no respecter of persons. And we cannot insulate ourselves from God's righteous, fatherly, caring, disciplining, judging in our lives because of who we might be in the eyes of other people. He is a wise father. He is a loving father. I want to make just one more observation here on verse 17. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Oh, this doesn't feel very comfortable, does it? What is this fear all about? Why should we fear? Is it a fear of judgment? Is it a, is it a terror of God himself? Well, I, I, I tend to go along with, with what the, uh, the great preacher Alexander McLaren says on this verse. Alexander McLaren, anybody heard of him? Hands up if you have. Yeah, one or two of you have. He was Manchester's Spurgeon. Uh, when Spurgeon was drawing great crowds in London in the Victorian period, Alexander McLaren was preaching in Manchester to similar-sized crowds. He had a longer ministry than Spurgeon. He lived well into the 20th century, uh, originally from Glasgow. But he, he says this, and this is interesting, and I think this, he's onto something here. He says, this fear is not so much a fear of God as a fear of ourselves and of the dangers we could easily fall into through temptation and sin. And when you think about it, that's the kind of thing that Peter would have written, isn't it? He knew what that fear was like. He'd been there. He'd done that. He'd got the t-shirt saying, I failed Jesus, but Jesus forgave me, and I don't want to fail Jesus again. And this is what McLaren says. It is a fear knowing our own weakness and the strong temptations that are around us of falling into sin. That is the one thing to be afraid of in this world. And that's pastorally helpful, because let me apply it to you like this. You do fall into sin. Let's suppose you do fall into sin that grieves you and grieves others. What do you have to fear from God? If you come back to him, if you tell him of your sins, if you confess your sin, he is always faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness, isn't he? The great lie that Satan loves to tell us when we feel that we are terrible sinners is, you're such a bad sinner that God won't hear your prayers, you great hypocrite. How dare you think of even praying to God now? You're too far gone. You can't pray to God now. You've blown it this time. Oh, call yourself a Christian. You're not a Christian. Look how badly you've sinned. Now, if we listen to Satan's lies, none of us would ever pray. None of us would ever go to God with our sins and beg for forgiveness. But we are encouraged to. We are encouraged to. We were looking this morning in the Sunday school class at the Lord's Prayer, and we asked the question, why does it say in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins? Why does it say that? 
Why should we do that every day? Well, because God knows our souls, God knows our minds, God knows our tendencies. And daily we draw on God's grace. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never, never come to an end. Count on it. It's a great incentive and motive to live a life that God calls us to live. But I come to a second one now, and it gets, I say it gets better. The second motive is this. We have been ransomed at the very greatest price. Verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We read in the first book of Kings, I think it's in chapter 10, where uh, the writer talks about Jerusalem in the days of King Solomon. And he says in that chapter about Jerusalem, everything was made of gold, Silver was counted as nothing in Solomon's time. Silver was just cheap tat. It's just just worthless. You know, there was plenty of gold, but silver, who, who wants silver? And now, Peter, the Holy Spirit is saying this to us. Silver and even gold do not compare in price to the precious blood of Jesus Christ, which alone can ransom your soul from sin and death and hell and mine. Silver and gold are precious metals, noble metals. They don't react easily, especially gold. How many gold compounds are there? I think you can form some, can't you? But not very many. Gold is a noble metal. It doesn't easily corrode or react. It's precious. It's precious. But there's something more precious than gold. You can look at the price of gold. It fluctuates over a period of time. People talk about the gold standard. Gold is meant to be some sort of greater standard of cost that remains the same. Gold is always gold, isn't it? It doesn't ever become cheap. And yet the price of gold goes a bit like the FTSE at times. It's up and down and up and down. But this is the thing. There is a currency that never fluctuates. And it's the blood of Jesus Christ. And look at how Peter, as he, as he goes into, as he writes this letter, as he deals with this point of our holiness, he's drawn more and more to how precious Jesus Christ is. The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And we know, don't we, that in the original Passover, And indeed, in every Passover thereafter, the people of Israel were told to choose a lamb, a year-old male lamb, a lamb without blemish, a lamb with no defect. And in fact, in so many of the sacrifices, you go through the book of Leviticus and again and again, for many of the sacrifices, it says the same thing, bring a lamb without blemish to the altar. That lamb must not be blind. That lamb must not be lame. That lamb must not have some clear physical uh, uh, sort of problem with it, um, deficiency with it, defectiveness. It must be physically sound. And what's that a picture of? 
It's a picture of the true, perfect, final Lamb of God. John the Baptist. Twice in John chapter 1 he indicates Jesus. And he says to his own disciples who were about to leave him and go to Jesus, with his every encouragement, of course, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why does he call him the Lamb of God? Because with Jesus Christ and with Jesus Christ crucified, all the lambs of the Passover and every burnt offering and sin offering and every day of atonement comes to an end. Here is the Lamb. Behold the Lamb. You can talk about the physical perfection of these many, many lambs, but here is the spiritual, moral, personal perfection of this Jesus. Look at him. Here is perfection. What does that mean? That Jesus was physically perfect? That he was some sort of superman to look at? That's not the point at all. It's his moral perfection. It's the character of Jesus. It's who he is. It's what he's like as God and as man. His life, his mind, his heart, his attitude, his words, his conversation, his whole being, what he is. He lives a life of utter heart devotion to God, his Father. And he pours out his lifeblood on that cross. As David was praying this morning, it wasn't only that he, 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 his flesh was torn and the pain he underwent physically. He poured out his soul he yielded up his spirit. He underwent sorrows. His, his very heart was broken. He gave himself. He became a sin offering on that altar for us. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Think about that for a moment. Sometimes these phrases trip off our tongues, don't they? The Lamb of God crucified. The Lord has laid on him the whole tremendous weight of my sin, my sin, my shameful sin, my horrible sin, my disgusting sin, my foul sin, my best forgotten sin, and yours, and yours, and yours, and yours, and that of all for whom he died. He paid for it. That was his death. That was his suffering. The Lord laid it all on him. And what you and I need to see is the price that has been paid for our redemption is beyond measure. How do you set a value to the cost of the blood of Christ? You can't. We were saying in the prayer meeting, go to the Tower of London, look at the crown jewels, look at them there in that amazing glass case where they're guarded and kept so secure. How much do they cost? What value would you place on them? Are they a billion pounds, a trillion pounds, whatever goes beyond that? They're, they are priceless. You can't calculate it. They have no price. They are beyond price. But the blood of Christ is infinitely greater than that. And it secures your eternal soul and mine. The blood 
of the Son of God. Supposing you or I, we set our heart on something that we, we must have this, we must have this thing. It's a new house. It's a new car. It's a new holiday. It's a new experience. It's something we, we want to have. And we empty our pockets. And we empty our bank accounts. And we empty our savings. And we sell everything we have. Because we believe that what we want to obtain is more precious than everything we have and possess right now. What we want to have is better than all of the things we have right now. And apply that to Jesus Christ. The blood and the life of his own son, God spent to secure your redemption, your salvation, your holiness. God has redeemed us to be a holy people, to be like Jesus, to be made like him. And as I draw to a close, I want to do what Peter does, finally, thirdly, in verses 20 and 21. Consider Jesus Christ. Verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. What is the great motivation to holiness? Or what is the means to holiness, perhaps? Do you want to live a more holy life than you do? The heartbeat of every true Christian says, yes, I do. Yes, I'm tired of my sin. Yes, I'm tired of being just like the rest of the world. Yes, I'm tired of my repeated failures. Oh, that I love Jesus Christ more. Well, what's the great motivation to holiness? It's to consider Jesus Christ himself. Do you remember how the writer to the Hebrews, in many places in that letter, says that to the Hebrews? Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Look at him. Take a close look at him. Study him. Contemplate him. View him. Feast your eyes on him. And that's what Peter is doing. And as he does so, we are drawn to do exactly the same. We become like the object of our worship. Isn't that so true? It's true in the negative sense, isn't it? Psalm 115 and other passages talk about those who worship vain idols. Those who worship them become like them. They have eyes but do not see and mouths but do not speak and so on. We become like what we worship. But as we worship Jesus, as we look at him, we become more like him. We think like him. We pray like him. We speak like him. We love like him. We forgive like him. His likeness is reproduced in his followers. And that is the great witness to this world that Christ fills us all and we are conformed into his image. Let me look very briefly with you at what 
Peter goes on to say in these verses about Jesus. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, he says. What does that mean? Does that mean that before the world was formed, God had some idea about Jesus? God knew who Jesus was? God said, well, this is my son. Here he is. I know him. It means far more than that. It's got that whole thrust of, here is my son, purposed, predetermined, predestined, if you like, uh, kitted out and ready and instructed and ready to be sent into the world for a great purpose. And that purpose is to eternally save and redeem every one of his people by his blood to deliver us from eternal damnation and hell and to deliver us to glory and life and forgiveness and immortality and to know the presence of God forever. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. That's always been the plan of God. There was never a plan B. There was never a sense of, oh, well, let's see how things work out and send Jesus in a bit later on if things don't go according to plan. No, before the foundation of the world, he was destined to be the Lamb of God. And then he goes on to say after that, Peter, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of of you. Now what's he saying there? Is he only talking about Jesus being made incarnate, about appearing in human flesh? He certainly means that, but if you look at Peter's general logic and pattern in this letter, he's particularly emphasizing the resurrection. Because God, he says in verse 21, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. When the Bible speaks about Christ's resurrection, it often doesn't simply mean that single act of raising Christ from the grave on Easter Sunday morning. The resurrection is very often a category that includes resurrection, ascension into heaven, and Christ being seated at the right hand of the Father on high. Now, this is the great question with a wonderful answer. Why did the Son of God do all these things? Why was he raised? Why did he ascend? Why is he in glory? Well, Peter answers the question here. It's for you, he says. It's for you. It's for you to understand what God has done to see the inestimable privilege and calling that is yours as Christians. We don't know well enough how much God has done for us. We all slip back into thinking we can do it ourselves. We, we imagine we're led astray by the world and the flesh and the devil into thinking that we need to pull ourselves up by our own bootlaces and improve ourselves and be better people and work our own way to heaven. We can think that so very easily, but we can't do anything like that. Nothing in our hand can we bring. Why did the Son of God do all these things? Why is he taken from the grave to the earth, to the sky, to heaven? Why? It's for us. It's for the sake of you, so that your faith and your hope are in God 
And if you notice, it's the same kind of language that Peter's already used back in verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The Son of God loved you and gave himself for you. If you are a Christian, your present and your future, your eternal destiny, your joy, your life, your all, are now all invested in Jesus Christ, who is in that place of ultimate glory with God. You and I might be many things. How many hats do we wear? How many different functions do we perform? What are we all? We might be a dad or a mum. We might be a teacher or a TA or, or a pupil or a professional or a manager. We might be a brother or a sister. We might have some particular status in society, some function we perform in life. But as far as death and life and eternity are concerned, There's nothing to compare to this one great thing. Are you a Christian? And are you, before anything else, a Christian? I may not be a pastor for much longer, for all I know. What does the Lord have in store for me? I don't know. What are you? You have a job title. You have a role to play. You have a certain description. But that is only a temporary thing. And that could come and that could go. But the great thing is this. Your life and eternity are all bound up in what Jesus Christ has done. And he's spent his blood for you. And he's the eternal Lamb of God, chosen by the Father before the foundation of the world, dead, raised to life, gone to glory for you that you might know that that is how you are ultimately defined. We live in a day when people are so into their identification labels. I'm this and I'm that. I'm this kind of person. This is my gender. This is my nationality. This is my orientation. Uh, This is my particular tribe. And we have to say, we, we forget all of those things compared to this one thing, that we are in Christ. It defines our earthly life and our pilgrimage and our eternal destiny. We are in Christ and he is in us and his glory is for us. And may the Lord bring that lesson home to every one of us this evening. Let's pray.